You didn't hold up your hand. We want you to have one. I've got to tell you this before I get into the serious part tonight. <laughs> that after I got myself out on the limb last night by talking about how how many miles over the speed limit do you have to go before you break the law? <laughs> Your pastor and I were going to have breakfast, not breakfast, but lunch with several pastors, and, and uh, he got started a little bit late. But when we got on I-70, he turned to me and he said, Pastor, I'm not speeding. You know, I've got to tell you what I was thinking. I was, I was thinking, I should say, what's the speed limit here, 100 miles an hour? <laughs> uh, well, it's been a good day. Been a real good day. Has it been for all of you? Well, you know, said this is the day that the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice in it. And we ought to do that. Let me review with you a little bit of the areas that we've covered so we can tie all this together because we're talking about prayer every night. And uh, your pastor spoke about double duty. I'm used, to, I'm used to speaking two and three times a day, just one right after the other with about 10 minutes in between periods, so this is not a problem for me, but it may be a problem for you. Hope it isn't. We uh, started out Sunday talking about Jesus, prayer and its practice, when the disciples said, Lord... Teach us to pray. We took each word in that little request. Lord, teach us to pray. And even as John's disciples, even as John taught his disciples. Sunday night we spoke to you about the magnificence of prayer. Most of us, and I said us, not just you, do not realize how wonderful and magnificent prayer really is. And we emphasize that Sunday night. Monday, we spoke to you in the first session on intercessors sought by the Lord. The Lord is seeking for people who will stand in the gap and pray for others and others, other endeavors that he has going on. Monday night, or Monday, the second lesson was on the right spirit before God. And that's to adore him. We've been majoring on this all the way through because in our society today, I am not sure that many of God's people really realize whose presence they are in when they are talking to him in prayer. We're talking to the creator, folks. We've learned this, haven't we? It makes us very cautious. It makes us give some thought before we ever open our mouth. We've learned that prayer is not a monologue, it's a dialogue. But so many times we do all the talking and very, listening to, very little listening to God. Anyway, Tuesday night we, I talked with you about abiding in Christ and His words abiding in us from John 15. I've heard that spoken on from many different aspects, but really that's talking about prayer. And we described what it means to abide in Christ, what it means His words abiding in you. But He said, if you, if, if, uh, if you abide in me, my words abiding in you, you can ask what you will and I'll give it to you. Don't take away from that phrase. It's a conditional promise, but if you keep your side of it, you can rest assured God will keep His side of it. 
Then uh, number six, I guess that was Tuesday night. The second lesson was the key to believing prayer was having faith in God. Most of us get hung up on the promises and we forget who made the promise. You really can't successfully pray using, let me say it this way, you really can't successfully pray by getting hung up on the promises without realizing who it was that promised it. You remember we talked about that? Peter was so surprised that the fig tree was dead the next day. And the Lord said, have faith in God. And then later on down to verse 2 there, he speaks about the promise. Then we got in some selected elements of prayer. Last night we spoke to you about the first session about prayer is very costly as your pastor prayed tonight, and it is very costly. It costs us time, it costs us thought, it costs us our self-indulgent ways. And then the last lesson last night was prayer and the willingness to forgive. And uh, those two lessons were very practical, right? We sometimes as Christians don't realize that God said, if you hold iniquity in your heart, I'll not hear you. He said, if you don't forgive others, and isn't that what he said? If you don't forgive others, I won't forgive you. And how plain that is. It couldn't be any plainer. Tonight, that brings us to, and by the way, tomorrow night, let me say the last night, we're going to be talking about uh, prayer in Jesus' name. That subject bothered me for a long time because I, I thought, what does that mean? And I found out in my own experience that that was just a way to close the prayer. A lot more meaning to that when he said, you ask it in my name. We'll be looking at that for the first lesson tomorrow night. Praying in Jesus' name. That should never be taken lightly. Don't forge Jesus' name on things that are not his will. And then number nine, that'll be tomorrow evening, will be the power of perseverance and boldness in prayer. Because we've been asked so many times, why do we have to pray several times about a matter? Well, you can rest assured God's heard you the first time. But sometimes we're not ready to hear. Sometimes we're not ready for the blessing. So we persevere. We ask and we ask and we ask and we ask. And finally, the Lord gives us assurance. Or he says, like, like he did to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Or like he did to Moses, don't ask me about this anymore. You're not going over in the promised land. But tonight we're going to be talking about prayer and pleading. There's a passage in uh, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, that uh, God is speaking to Jacob, or the Israelites, as we could say. And in chapter 43, in verse, we're going to back up here a little bit to see the context in which he said this, but we're going to look at uh, chapter 43, verse 25 and 26, but I'm going to go back to verse 21. He said, This people have I farmed formed for myself that they show forth my praise but that's a contrast word but but thou hast not called upon me O Jacob but thou hast been weary of me O Israel can you imagine being weary of God thou hast not bought brought me the small cattle of the burnt offerings neither hast thou honored me with the thy sacrifices I have not caused thee to serve with an offering, nor wearied thee with incense. 
Thou hast brought me no sweet cane with honey, money, neither hast thou filled me with the fat of the sacrifices, but thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. Verse 25, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. I recently just tried to paraphrase what he's saying in those two verses. This is my paraphrase. I've I'm sure you might be able to do better, but what he's saying here in those two verses is that to me that God is blotting out, God is in the business of blotting out sin, and in no way do we merit it. We don't merit being forgiven, right? But he says, this is a sovereign act of God. And he says, I'm doing it for my sake. And he said, if this is not the case, this again is a paraphrase, my paraphrase, if, be, if this be not the case, remind me of any merit that you might claim. Now we're going to use those words there, let us plead together. I found that Job said in Job 16 and verse 21, Oh, that one might plead with God as a man pleadeth for his neighbor. You might be asking, as I was, what in the world does pleading mean? And sometimes we can give synonyms, but we can't give definitions. You see, there's a contrast here that will help us understand what pleading means. When I say prayer, we're talking about petitioning. And petitioning God is Asking, simply asking. But pleading goes much further than simply asking. Pleading means to show reasons. It means to argue. You see, a pleader is one who is not content with merely tabling the petition, but he brings or he supports his case with reasons, with arguments, and with appeals. I said to you the other night in kind of asking that or kind of revealing what we're going to talk about tonight. I said, do you have a pleader in your family? If you have several children, I'll venture to say you've got at least one of them that was a pleader. In other words, they didn't take no for an answer. Right? I see some of you smiling. We have two girls and a boy, and we had a pleader. I hate to say this, but it's a, it was a girl. <laughs> And mother and dad would say, do this. And she'd say, well, why should I do that? Well, this is the reason you ought to do that. Well, you know, I can do it. I've got the time, and I'm making up this case. I've got the time. I can do it. And on and on you go. She pled. She pled. She argued with me. Now, you see, we have contemporary profession called lawyering. They are pleaders. You wouldn't want somebody to represent you that was not a pleader, I don't think. And in the Bible position is called an advocate. 
You see, pleading, in my opinion, is a lost element in our praying today. Not for all. I understand there's exceptions. But without pleading, there is no perseverance. Why don't we plead? Why don't we argue? Why don't we give reasons? And right away, some of you are saying, well, oh, that's disrespectful to God. I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you some of the, some of the greatest prayer men and uh, some of the greatest servants of God were pleaders before, this, before we get through this tonight. Why don't we plead? There's several reasons. One is we have very little or no burden for the petition that we're asking. If you don't have a burden and you don't have any real reasons to be asking, you just petition, that's it. That's one reason we don't have pleaders today as we used to. The second reason is that we have, uh, we have people with very little knowledge of the Bible. They don't know how to plead. Because to plead, you've got to plead within the realms of Scripture. You've got to plead in the realms of who God is, His nature and His attributes and what He can do and what, he's, what He can't do, what He said He would do and what He said He wouldn't do. You see, an advocate studies and builds a case, does he not? A lawyer, he studies and he builds a case, or both. Pleading, and stay with me now, pleading necessitates a massive reservoir of Bible facts and principles. Now, I know we have a negative feeling toward lawyers today because there's just pages and pages and pages and pages in the dictionary, dictionary yeah, in the uh, telephone directory of lawyers. But nevertheless, you go into most, of, most lawyers' offices and their shelves are full of books. And most of those books are, are books that pertain to, to the law. What they can do and what they can't do. What the state will let them, what the state won't, or what the federal government will let, uh, what what the federal government can do and what they can't do. But it, but in pleading, and as far as prayer, it necessitates a massive reservoir of Bible facts and principles, and because what we, what must we, what must we know to plead? And a question, let me ask: What must we know in order to plead? Even in a casual survey of God's pleading men in Scripture, it's revealed. Number one, that they pled God's nature. Number two, they pled God's authority. And number three, they teach us what God can and cannot do. And these, as we'll be looking at them in just a moment, these are rich collections of theology. And I think you'll, I want you to remember that. These are rich collections of theology, of biblical principles. They teach us about our depraved nature. They recognize their guilt and what they deserved. And we're going to see this in, in the prayers of God's great men of the Scriptures in just a moment. All these things that I've mentioned and more fill the mouths of those saints who had learned to plead with God. Pleading prayer demands and necessitates study. Why should God answer your prayer? And I leave that question with you. The next time you pray, you ask yourself, why should God answer the prayer that I'm asking? 
Now I want to get to the biblical examples. Now I'll give you time to look these up. I have them copied down here for sake of time, but <clears throat> let's look at Moses. I don't think any of us would would uh, say that Moses was not one of the great leaders of Israel, one of the great men of God, would we not? <clears throat> we read in Exodus chapter 32, verses 8 through 10, and I'll stop at different places in the scripture, <clears throat> give you other words and things, but it says they have turned aside quickly. It means hurriedly, out of the way which I commanded them. Their guilt was more glaring, in other words. They've turned aside, out of the way, out of the direction that I have had have uh, intended for them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. And that stiff neck simply means a hard neck with no bending and no hope of change. Now, therefore, let me alone, or allow me. Now, therefore, let me alone. Allow me. Allow me is my words. That my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them. And I will make of thee a great nation. You see, the fate of Israel was in Moses' hand. God put it there. But the fate of Israel was in Moses' hand. You see, he's, he's being reminded of his mediatorial office. And so the pleading in verse 11 of that same passage... Here it is. And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and and with a mighty hand? Are you already see the pleading in that? Moses is saying, these are not my people, they're yours. In verse 12, wherefore should the Egyptians speak? In other words, what, the, what's the, what are the Egyptians going to say? They may say, for mischief did he bring them out, that is God bring them out, to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. He says, is that what the Egyptians, in other words, God, is that what you're going to do when you annihilate these people? That's what the Egyptians are going to say. Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. And again, he says, against thy people. Verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidest, I will multiply your seeds as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. Let me just identify the points of pleading. Number one in verse 11, as I identified to you, he says, Lord, these are your people. They're not mine. They're yours. Also, verse 11, he says, he speaks of God's mighty power. He said, you brought them out of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. 
Number 12, he says, Lord, I want to remind you, your reputation's at stake. He said, what are the Egyptians going to say about you? Your reputation's at stake. Your name's at stake. Verse 12, he says, he reminds the Lord of his, of his wrath. He said, thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. But in verse 12 also, he talks about God's mercy. When he said, repent of this against, uh, repent of this evil against thy people. And in verse 13, he talks about a tremendous argument piece. Lord, I want to remind you of your covenant that you made with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob. And in verse 14, this is what it says. And the Lord repented. This indicates a change. We know God doesn't make any mistakes. We know God doesn't sin. But it indicates a change. But you see, Moses was left without assurance of his prayer being answered. We don't read about that. He was left without any assurance of that. But one thing Moses could say, he could, he could, he could show Israel how serious their sin was. And that's evidenced by, his, by what God said. A great pleader. He pled. He didn't just say, Lord, I believe you're wrong. Wish you'd change your mind. He pled the- theology. He pled biblical principles. He reminded God of this and that and something else. And basically he said, your name's at stake. These are your people. Now we come to another biblical character known as Joshua. He's a great man. Like Moses, these are not just these are not just average people. Joshua, and the background here. This is in Joshua chapter seven, verses seven, eight, and nine. The background here is that Israel's army had been defeated at Ai, and it says, and I quote: "The people melted and became as water." That's pretty thin, isn't it? <laughs> but it, as we read in verse seven. Here's the pleading. And Joshua said, At last, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into a hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? And that's a question. Lord, did you just bring us over here to destroy us? Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. Verse 8, O Lord, what shall I say? This is pray. O Lord, what shall I say? What shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies? Verse 9, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it, and and shall environ us around and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? The pleading is so evident in that passage. In verse 7, he, he pleads God's purpose. He said, Lord, why did you bring us out here? What's your purpose? Just to destroy us? He didn't know that, but, I mean, God, you didn't have to... Let me put this. Joshua knew better than that, but he's reminding God, you brought us out here for a purpose. In verse 8, he says, 
Your reputation's at stake, Lord. And then in verse 9, he talks about his name. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? What these people are going to make of you? Now, remember that that, uh, God had said, remind me. Bring it to my memory. Folks, God delights for us to argue the case with him using biblical principles that we find in within the Word of God. You know, my prayer is for the United States of America, especially as we come up to this election. And the way I'm pleading with God is that, Lord, this is the one and only country, basically, that sends missionaries. This is one of the few countries that still has the liberty and the freedoms to preach the Word of God and to assemble like we are here tonight. And Father, if you allow us to go under, which may be his will, I don't know. But if you allow us to go under, what's going to happen to your people? They're not my people, they're they're your people. You say, well, that's wrong. No, that's not, I don't think so. There's a place for pleading. Talk with the Lord about it. Well, in Joshua 8 and chapter 1, or Joshua chapter 8, verse 1, he said, I have given unto thy king, unto thy hand, the king of Ai. That's the next chapter. I have given unto thy hand the king of Ai, and his people, and his city, and his land. It worked. Joshua was a great pleader. Well, what about David? I think we'd all agree tonight that Moses was a great man. Joshua was a great man, great leaders. David was a great man. He used to inspire the Psalms and, of course, the king of Israel. But the background that we're going to look at here from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 25 through 29 is this. The background is the continuation of David's house. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2, David made this observation. I dwell in the house of cedar, but the, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. Now we skip down to verse 25, and this is the prayer that David uttered. And now, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant, he reminds God, not that God needs this, but it, Moses or, or David needed it. He says, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as thou hast said. He said, well, that's disrespectful of God. must not be because... You got an answer to that. Do as thou hast said. Put me in remembrance, God said. And verse 26, and let thy name be magnified forever. Saying, the Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of thy servant David, notice, thy servant David, be established before thee. Verse 27, for thou, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, has revealed to thy servant, saying, he says, this is what you've shown me. I will build thee a house. Therefore hath thy servant found in in his heart to pray this prayer unto thee. He said, I remember what you said, so this this is motivating me to pray. 
In verse 28 it says, And now, O Lord God, thou art, thou art that God, and thy words be true. That's biblical. That's, that's theological. Thy words be true. And thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. He's reminding God of the promise that he'd made to him, to David. Or to him. Verse 29. Therefore now let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, O Lord God, hast spoken it. He reminds him a second time. This is what you said. And with thy blessing, let the house of thy servant be blessed forever. I've just picked out four, three points of pleading in that, in that prayer. One is he's pled God's word. He said, this is what you said, God. I'm reminding you of it. This is what you, this is what you told me. In verse 22, 26, he, he, he pleads God's name. And let thy name be magnified forever. And then in verse 27, he, he again, he pleads God's covenant. He said, I'll build thee a house. That was an agreement. He said, you've said you would build my house. Well, we know the conclusion of the story. God didn't permit David to build a house, physical house. But David's house lives forever through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we come to another great man of, of God, prayer, a prayer, prayer man. This is Nehemiah. I love Nehemiah. I've just finished writing 13 lessons for the church, Fort Worth, to use one of these days. Some uh, lesson helps. Nehemiah was a great man. I want to give you the background here just briefly. The background is this. The condition of the walls and the gates of Jerusalem were a reproach to Nehemiah God. Hananiah, a brother of Nehemiah, and certain others and certain others brought the message to Nehemiah and told him what the condition of the city was, the city of God, Zion, the city of God. And so in, and I get the reference here, in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, he talks with the Lord. He doesn't just petition the Lord. He talks with him and he pleads with God. Follow with me as I read this. Verse 5 said, and, I, and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him, and observe his commandments. That keepeth covenant mercy. He reminds God about his nature. God keeps every covenant he makes, right? And in verse 6 he said, let thine ear be... Be now be a, let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of who? Thy servant. He's reminding God. Nehemiah says, remember, I'm your child. I'm your servant. Well, God knew that. But he's pleading. Which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel thy servants not only am I your servant but I am praying for those day and night your people thy servants do you see the case he's building and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against thee both I and my father's house 
have sinned. So he's admitting the situation is not good, hasn't been good. But verse 7 says, We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept thy commandments. He's admitting the case. Have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest. Thy servant Moses, he says, admitting, he said, we didn't keep the commands and statutes that thy servant Moses gave us. But verse 8, he said, remember. Can you imagine, folks, I'm getting kind of worked up here because we don't think like this. We think if I, if I, ask, if I go in before the Lord and tell him to remember something, I'm disgracing him. No, 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 no. He allows for us to bring to his attention things that he has said and covenants that he's made and the fact that we're his children or that this is his church. He loves to hear that. He hasn't forgotten it, no. He said, Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, and he even quotes a scripture here, if you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations, colon, not a period, colon. Verse 9 says, but if you turn unto me and keep my commandments, and this is still a quote, this is what Moses said, but if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out, let me back up there, though there were of you cast out into the uttermost parts of heaven, yet will I gather thee from hence, thence, and bring them into the place that I have chosen to set my name there. When's the last time that we prayed and we've actually quoted Scripture and said, Lord, this is what you have said? That's what Nehemiah is doing. And verse 10, he said, Now these are thy servants. <laughs> these are not my people. These are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed. God knew that he'd redeemed them, but as a nation even, but whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. And verse 11, he said, O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant. He's reminding God again who who he is. God doesn't need that necessarily, but we need to be reminded. We're the servants of God. And Lord, we're talking to you as, as a redeemed one. I'm bringing my petition to you as one of your servants. Thy servant enter the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee, thy servant this day, again, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. You see, he knew God was a God of mercy. And if, if it was God's will, he would allow him to do what he was wanting to do, and that's to go back and build the walls and hang the gates. Now, the point of pleading in that prayer is simply this. Verse 5, he reminds God of his covenant, of his agreement. Verse 5, he also reminds God of his mercy. He's a God of mercy. In verse 6, he reminds God of God that he's his servant. In verse 6, he also reminds God of his of his ability and wishfulness for, thank, for, for uh, forgiveness. And in verse 10, ten, he's declaring God's power. All of those are points of pleading. We could go on and give example after example. 
I just put Jesus was uh, an example of this, but time will not permit to even go into this. Don't even have it in my notes. But in John chapter 17, which is truly the Lord's Prayer, there's more pleading in that chapter, which is all the prayer of Jesus. There's more pleading than petitioning in that prayer. I believe you'll find there's four petitions, and the remaining portion is pleading or reasoning. I'm sorry, reasoning. And we're talking about the Son of God. Folks, this kind of praying is desperately needed today. And I want to give you some reasons. It's desperately needed today. One reason is for our transgressions. Lay hold of God's throne and plead with all your might in boldness. Plead your misery and God's mercy. We can plead that. You see, the deeper your appreciation of your exceeding sinfulness, the greater will be your love for God who gives us deliverance from it. I was just looking this afternoon, Luke chapter 7, verse 42 and 43. Remember when Jesus talked about the, or gave the story about the two creditors? And uh, neither one of them could pay. And one of them, I think, owed 500 pence and the other 50 pence. And he forgave them both. And he said, well, who, who do you think uh, showed the greatest love? And, of course, the answer was the one that was forgiven most. You see, we need to plead our condition and talk to the Lord about our exceeding sinfulness at times, many, much of the time. Because the greater will be, as I said a moment ago, your love of God who gives us deliverance from it. So one is for our transgressions. I'm giving you reasons why we need this kind of praying today. Two, for holy living. Sometimes there's an inward enslavement to a particular sin. Nobody knows it but you. And I believe I can say in the case here that all of us have had at times dealing with inward enslavement to a particular sin. We can pray to the Lord, create, me, create in me a clean heart, O God. But as we look at this and we're trying to get, so to speak, out of the prison of this little secret sin that nobody knows about. It may just be a bad attitude. I'm not talking about adultery or stealing or murder here, although that would be the same case. But, but here's what I say. We need to search the Scriptures. Collect the promises and plead for consideration and admit you, that your case to be a sad case. I'm your child. You've saved me. And I have this enslavement that nobody else knows, but I know about it. And Lord, it's a sad situation. But you said in your word that you'd forgive. You've taught us in your word that you'd be merciful. You see, that's the way we ought to pray. One is for our transgressions. Two is for holy living. Number three, for boldness to present the gospel. The scripture I said there, or gave you in Isaiah 43, verse 26, if you let me just remind you there in the first part of that, it says, put me in remembrance. Is that phrase new to you? I'm not asking for a vocal, vocalizing here, but put me in remembrance. 
Just as we've learned this week that God is waiting to bless. This phrase here, he says, put me in remembrance. You see, he wants to be reminded of his power and to con- uh, power to con- uh, power to convince. I didn't say that right. His power to save, and that he's no respecter of persons. He wants to be reminded of that. You may say, "Well, you know, that old boy over there, he needs to be saved, but he doesn't deserve it. He's a Christless guy. He's a godless guy. He doesn't care anything about the Bible or nothing else." But Lord, you've said in your word that that you're not a respecter of persons. You've said in your word that if he trusts Jesus Christ as your savior, as his savior, he can be saved. You see, our prayer cannot save anybody, but we can plead for God's hand to move upon him. Number four, another reason is for some secret burden, some secret sorrow, some secret disappointment. And I want to give you a word of warning here. Be careful that you do not falsely charge God. We have an ideal example of this. I talked to somebody the other night about it. In the book of Habakkuk, this is what Habakkuk said. The law is slacked and judgment doth never go forth. (laughs) He learned his lesson. Finally, he said, I'll just go up in the tower and wait and see what you're going to do, what you're going to say. When he got through the end of the chapter, the last chapter of Habakkuk, he said, I don't care what happens, Lord, I'm just going to trust you. I'm paraphrasing that. You see, that's a wrong judgment. That's foolishly foolishly charging God. But we can tell God of his reading, of our reading, and plead his words. One reason we don't plead with God is we don't read our we don't read the Bible very much. I'm talking about as much as we could or should. That's all of us. Remember, remember this. You could be in in God's school as Job was, or as Paul, the apostle, were, both of them. Job and Paul, the apostle, were. In other words, the ministry of God's throne. When in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, after Paul asked that the throne, the thorn of the flesh be removed three times, and God simply said, my grace is sufficient for you. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, he said, and I quote, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities and my weaknesses. You see, he'd gone through God's school, and he finally came to the conclusion, Lord, you're, you're teaching me this, that I would glory in my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me, for when I am weak, then am I strong. He got a passing grade. I want to challenge you tonight that to learn the art of pleading in prayer. Folks, this is not just a presentation. I'm challenging you. Learn the art of pleading if you haven't already. But it's going to take Bible study. It's going to take your study of God. It's going to take your study of, of Scripture principles. You're going to have to become a biblical student or a Bible student to do this. Now, I'm not talking about a, a, a genius. I'm just talking about your average Bible reading. You need to study the Scriptures if you're, going to plead, if you're going to plead in prayer. Because a true advocate will continually study the Bible. 
A good lawyer continues studying the law, right? I have a good Christian man that does our uh, IRS work every year. He says to me, Brother Zellner, I have to study volumes every year because the law is continually changing. Folks, we've got it better than that. God's laws and principles never change. So be a true advocate and study the Scriptures. Because, folks, a ministry of intercession is so greatly needed today. We have Brother Doug, your missionary, here tonight. I'm sure he would be so pleased to know that you call his name in prayer and plead with God. Brother Sanford, Lord, you know, I want to remind you, he's your servant. You've called him. You've sent him there. You didn't send him there to him to be an embarrassment to yourself. You sent him there with the final purpose of a church being organized, people being saved and scripture baptized, a church being organized. Now, Lord, we just want to remind you of this. Please be with him. Man, what a prayer. Not because I've said it, but because you're taking biblical principles. <coughs> Pastor, I'm going to turn it back to you.